Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, Mar Nelson is 15 years sober, but most importantly, she's an agent of change as far as sobriety is concerned. At least I see that as being so important. She talked with us today about the fact that she started up a network called Soberforce. It is within a Fortune 500 company called Salesforce. And over the pandemic, she and a couple other sober coworkers provided a space for other coworkers to come and talk about sobriety, whether they were sober or not, uh, and all kinds of other addictions too. They created a safe space on a corporate level, which as far as I'm concerned, is pretty much unheard of. They had the framework in place because of other initiatives that their company had put together. So they used that to create this group called Soberforce. We get into that, but we also talk about Marin's story. Uh, 15 years sober, uh, 12-step, just unbelievable recovery. Uh, I got linked up with her because my friend Connor Marsden, uh, a great friend of mine who I know through Richmond football, uh, he, he heard this podcast and he said, I've got a woman you got to talk to that I work with. And uh, I owed Connor because I crashed two of his cars in college. And I linked up with Marn and it was well worth it. Worth it for me, worth it for you. So uh, first, this guy's new album is coming out. And this is a song from his new album. Kevin Souza. Going to a quiet spot. Oh, there we go. Marm, what's happening? Hi. Uh, so the only other person that you are going to be able to hear is Mike. Mike, say hi. Hey, how you doing? That's Mike. Oh, hey, Mike. <laughs> Mike's Mike's our producer, so it's just you, myself, and Mike. Uh, I love it. Are you are you so are you in Minneapolis right now? I live on a farm, actually. Oh, you live Aston, on a farm, Minnesota. Yeah, we moved to a farm during COVID. So to where survive? What, what part of Minnesota? <laughs> <laughs> to what, survive with all the children and pets. Yeah. Um, we live in. It's, it's called Afton. It's like twenty minutes outside of St. Paul. Okay. So it's not far. That's the beauty of Minnesota. You can be. 20 minutes outside of the state capital and live on seven acres with lots of trees. It's and, beautiful. And you grew up in Minnesota your whole life. I did. I grew up in St. Paul. Okay. Where'd you go to high school? St. Paul Academy. Okay. All the way through second through 12th grade. Yep. My kids are just starting their journey out here. It's a whole new world. They're in Montessori. I don't know anything about it, but I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning about why we call it silver. Why? Why are we doing this? <laughs> We're paying money policy. Okay, got it. Practical just go. Just skills. go with the flow. You don't yeah. ask questions. I think it's a scam. I think they're making money for the nearest country club. <laughs> <laughs> Polishing silver, collecting golf. No, I'm kidding. It's a great school. They love it. <laughs> what about? So, what about high school? When you grew up, I, I guess I want to ask: When was the first time you drank? Oh, when I was 14. Okay. What happened? 14. It was a Zima. It was before, and it was right after diving practice. I was on the diving team. Uh, yeah, super, super awesome. Hot story. Yeah, no, it was in a parking lot of a park. <laughs> there was a Zima, and it was a girlfriend, and that's, that was it. But I was, I remember, as any good alcoholic would, I remember the moment being like, oh, this, yes, this, like, quiets down the voice in my head. This is nice. What there you go. And then it was, yeah, that's, go ahead. No, what, ha <laughs> what happened to you after, after you drank as far as, how did you notice your mind change? I always tell people my, mo my just my, subconsciously my motives changed. Uh, from the moment mm -hmm. I drank alcohol. Yeah it became my, the motivating factor in, in most, if not all, the rest yes. of my life. Uh, but I didn't even yes. know it. I was just moving towards my next drink the whole time. A hundred percent, yes. Uh, yeah, well, it quieted the hamster 
down. I felt like I always had a hamster on a wheel. And I was, uh, you know, I had anxiety pretty early, undiagnosed until my adult life, but definitely had anxiety from like earliest moments. And so it was that first moment of quiet and calm that I felt. And so that feeling is what I was chasing from there on forward. Did you have alcoholism in your family? Oh, gosh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, my dad has been sober for 33 years in a 12-step program, still super active in his recovery program. Uh, his two older brothers, my old, my uncles, sober even longer. So I am very lucky that I had an example in my immediate family and my extended family of sobriety. And I also had a really good example of active alcoholism and what that looked like. And um, that's a big part of my story is that no one, there was no intervention, but it was really clear to me what a sober alcoholic versus a drunk alcoholic looks like. And, um, the prospect of not having alcohol in my life was pretty terrifying, but the prospect of having a drunk al alcoholic life was more terrifying. And I'm really grateful that I had that example of both. I mean, I'm not, I, I mean, it breaks my heart too for that family member, but like, it helped save me, I'm sure, years of pain and suffering. Well, let's, let's go backwards. You grew up, uh, I'm assuming your father was sober for most of what you can remember? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, since I was seven. Yeah. Did you? And I never saw him drunk. He was like, um, you know, he was like sipping drinks. So he was trying to do it on his own. He's white knuckling it for my whole life. And then it wasn't until I was seven that he actually started in a 12-step program because that path wasn't working. So he started in the 12-step program, and did that become, was your father an attractive guy to be around? Very much so, yes. He still is. He's got a huge network. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's me times two, I'd say. Um, he's very gregarious, outgoing, super successful career, huge member of the community, served on lots of nonprofit boards, funny guy. I mean, he's, yeah, he's someone that people want to be around. We joke that he's the mayor of the Twin Cities. <laughs> and he's, he's a, you know, and, and it's an example of like what a sober life can look like. Uh, cause there's no way that that's, that would be how he would be in this world at, you know, 73 years old now. What did, what <laughs> did they say to drinking. you? What did they say to you as you were, were growing old, uh, growing older about, about mm. alcoholism and about getting sober? Was there any message there or was it kind of promotion oh, yeah. by attraction? Well, it was more, it was attraction for sure. I'm grateful for that because I think I would have resisted sobriety a lot longer if there had been any sort of push on me. Um, but my dad definitely carried around the like, how, you know, the quiz of like, do you have a drinking problem? And then resources on the back. So like he definitely busted that out um, to each of us at some point. I'm sure maybe not my sister, but the rest of us, I think he busted that out. Uh he, the message was always, we have a family disease. It's a family disease. Alcoholism is a family disease. Um, my dad's parents both had drinking problems, um, never had sobriety. And I actually didn't meet my grandma died before I was born. My grandpa died when I was one on my dad's side. And so it was like, Hey, this is just a fact of our genetic makeup. And it's, it's, you know, could be in you, maybe not, but like, here are the things to watch for. And and then what really he did was demonstrated what it means to have a sober life and his commitment to a 12-step program in that community. And we would do service work every Thanksgiving with his 12-step group. We'd go serve food um, at a restaurant uh, to, you know, uh, underserved population. And so I got to see by being around these amazing people, like what a sober alcoholic looks like, someone who works a program or has some sort of spiritual life. Yeah, I got up. It's about service. I love how you're saying, because what I'm hearing is a guy who's constantly around people um, and is of service and is part of, I like when mm -hmm. you said network. That's such an attractive thing about sobriety and, and 12 steps is that um, I got off, I was on a meeting last night and I got off and I was like, it, it, it was so great to just be a, I felt like, oh, because it had been a little while since I've really gotten um, connected, a couple weeks, and I was like, uh, gosh, that's right. I'm a part of this mm. thing. Mm -hmm. um, like it really is. And it's my, to me, it's like we're a bunch of outlaws 
and <laughs> you, you you don't really it's not you, you don't get sober and like straighten up you know uh you, you, get, you get sober and you get well uh if you yeah. if, if you do the right stuff but i yeah. felt i just felt fulfilled um and it reminded yeah. me it was like oh yeah that's right i'm a part right. of something i'm a part of this huge positive network and it's uh that's, that's the right. kind of stuff and it gives me and the feeling i got is the feeling that alcohol and drugs used to give me but uh you let me talk about me we'll, we'll be here all day so back to you no i love it um, no but you're exactly right the part the connection that i thought i got from drugs and alcohol but i didn't it was like it was false it was fake it yeah. was not not authentic connection well I, I mean, now i have that and that authentic connection is just it's it's, it's hard to even describe mm, yeah for sure especially when you've been someone who has mental health stuff from an early age you know that ability to connect with myself uh just as i am that took a long time. That took a long time. And that's okay. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not someone who wishes I was anything other than I am, which is a gift of sobriety. Yeah. I don't sure. wish that I wasn't an alcoholic because like you, I get to go to these meetings and feel connected and have a community who loves me just as I am and an opportunity every day to show up in service and to have it be progress, not perfection. And that that is something I genuinely have arrived at a place. And it doesn't mean I don't self struggles. Of course I do. And of course I fall into perfectionist mode and have to come back out of that, you know, which usually means being a service to someone else to then get connected, to then remember <laughs> what my primary purpose is, to then put everything else in perspective. Yeah. But that I get to even be on that journey is such a gift. It's such a gift. So, so I don't, yeah. But, but back to your journey. So you, you, you drank a little bit when you were 14. How does, how does high school play out? How does it evolve? So I was, you know, because I was so acutely aware that this is a family disease, I was very much the alcoholic. And not to say that someone knowing that therefore stops them from being a complete disaster. But I was the kind of alcoholic that could hold it together for my outside image and play the part and look the part while inside I was became more and more messy over the years. And so for me, you know, in high school, I hung with the kids who drank like ninth grade, lost all my friends end of the year in like a very classic, dramatic high school, 14 years old, like all friends abandoned, super dramatic. And it was definitely on my doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, but luckily made this whole new group of friends who are still my best friends today. It's actually pretty remarkable. We just had five-year-old twins and just had them and their, their kids over. And we just, we can't, and I, we don't take it for granted. I'm, I, you know, gratitude is my primary value and saying to each other, how incredible is this that we still choose to be together and our husbands choose to be together and our kids choose to be together, you know, 30 years later, pretty remarkable. Anyways. So I came back together with my elementary school age friends in 10th grade and they didn't drink. So that actually, I white knuckled it for about a year and a half until that crew started experimenting with alcohol. <laughs> you had to wait which it out. I was so grateful for. Yeah. I was like, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, all, you know, I was in all this, I was captain of the swimming and diving team and I was varsity gymnastics in middle school on and I, had really good grades and I went to a private school, you know, like I had the outside, the outside stuff looked really good. And I went to a really good school, but I definitely picked Madison because they drink a lot and they knew that. And I was like, yep, that's my place. That's where I'm going. great academics, but also huge party school. So, so university of Wisconsin. Um, yeah. Okay. And you know, but again, I managed to, my boyfriend in, in college was pre-med. So that kept me at the library means I had a really good GPA. <laughs> so I wanted to see him. I had to go to the library. Um, but it didn't take long. I moved to New York after I graduated and uh, bottomed out at 24, just after my 24th birthday. So I drank for 10 years. What happened? That's all I needed. Yeah, that's, some people don't even need that long. I mean, a fraction of that. Um, yeah. What happened? Like, how did you bottom out? Not nothing, nothing remarkable. It literally was just like sick and tired of being sick and tired. And at the very end, I felt pretty suicidal. And I would think about, you know, what would happen if I just, you know, jumped in front of the subway, which just like breaks my heart to even say it out loud that I was that low. But I just didn't know how to stop. I couldn't stop. 
It's like, it was a great day. I drank. It was a terrible. I drank. I couldn't not drink. And I spent the day obsessing over where was I going to drink with whom, how many hours could I get in before I need to go to sleep to get back up, to get to work. Like, and again, the outside stuff looked good. I had a boyfriend, my rent was paid. I was, you know, 20 something living in New York city and moved out there on my own, figured it out, got a job, got a place. And but I was hold. I felt like I was holding on to my life by my fingernails. Like I could feel that I was like right on the cusp of like losing everything. And I was starting to do things that I said I never do, like drink in the morning or smoke a joint before going to work. Yeah. And I knew that I couldn't keep it up much longer. I started getting called out by family members, like my sister. Six months before I got sober, it was like basically said I seemed a lot like this family member who was still drinking alcoholically and I was furious but I'm grateful to her and I thank her for that because you planted the seeds that said like hey guess what I see you <laughs> you're not hiding this so well anymore I can see what's happening no matter how no matter how much you think you have your 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 shit together um no, on, yeah. on, on paper or on the outside yeah. yeah so you know and because I lived in New York and my family was elsewhere like I could some my hold it together, but I remember, you know, the last time my parents visited before I got sober, like, oh, it's just so dramatic, and I was so angry, and I, you know, showed up high, and they, I don't know if they knew or didn't know, but, like, left the dinner in a big huff, and they needed to go get drunk, and so I had enough, I guess, awareness and an example of what it could look like, um, in a moment of grace really was my bottom was like this moment of grace after a really long birthday hangover and yet another night of not knowing how I'd gotten myself into a situation and re not remembering parts of the night and waking up just feeling completely terrified, just like to my core terrified that I was going to do something that was going to kill me and closing my eyes and I'd read somewhere my birthday that year was on May 5th. So May 5th, oh, my birthday is always May 5th, but it was 555 that year. It's May 5th, 2005. And I read that it was my wish day was May 8th. Whatever a wish day is, I have no idea. I found some <laughs> random website and I was like, cool, a wish day. What's that? Tell me more. And it said, those of you born on May 5th are in a downward spiral and need to wish for clarity. And I was like, ooh, that resonates. And so I woke up that morning horribly hungover again and standing in my kitchen in Brooklyn and I closed my eyes and I said, okay, I need clarity. And I saw myself standing at the fork in the road and at the one end of the road on the left was my dad and my uncles. And on the other end of the other fork of the road was this family member who's drunk. And, and I heard very loudly in my head, take your path. Wow. And it gives me goosebumps still. It's like, you know, that moment, that was my moment of grace. And I uh, picked up the phone and I called my parents. It was Mother's Day. Oh, and that makes me tear up because my mom passed away last year. Um, but I said, happy Mother's Day. I think I have a problem. <laughs> I think I have a drinking problem. And she's like, oh, okay, I love you. I'm going to give the phone to your dad. <laughs> this is his area. This is his area of expertise. <laughs> Hold on. They're like at a country club having a loud breath. <laughs> and my sweet dad got on the phone and he said, okay, you need to call your cousin. I had a cousin in New York who's sober and you need to look up intergroup and find a meeting and go to a meeting and call me later. Oh, your dad was, he, he'd been waiting on that call, right? Maybe. I, you know, I don't know. He never said to me, like, I knew you were an alcoholic. I think, I, I think I hit it pretty well. I mean, maybe, but not like, you know, I... And it wouldn't have been much longer that I would have been able to really hold it together. But living in New York and my parents being in Minnesota, I, I was I was pretty well aware that they would be looking for a problem. You know, like yeah. that's how I felt. Like everyone's got their eyes on me. I better be. I better play this pretty. And I think that. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. That's go ahead. probably. I just think that's true for a lot of people, and I and that's the group of people that I hope to reach. Um, today is the people who have the job, have the marriage, have the kids, have the things look like they're okay, but inside they're terribly depressed, full of shame, remorse, can't figure out how to stop drinking. And to be able to say to them, like, guess what? Like alcoholics look like us too. Yeah. Like this is, this is a low enough bottom, how you feel and how much you hate yourself. Like that's low enough. You don't need to go any lower. There's another way to live.
if you could describe what was going on inside you in, internally, like, you know, the spiritual sickness and the brokenness, how would you say it? Mm, oh, it just makes me so sad to even think about that 24-year-old self. I just felt so disconnected. I felt hollow. Like, I'd look in the mirror, and I, I remember this moment looking in the mirror drunk and literally seeing black holes for my eyes and being horrified. Like I didn't, I didn't felt so disconnected from myself and my spiritual self. What was that? I didn't even, I had no idea how to connect with the spiritual realm. Like my only moments of connection that I would reflect back on would be, I was a big backpacker when I was in high school. And so there was a moment in 11th grade standing on the top of a mountain in Washington state. I went on a month long camping trip. My parents were probably like, send her away. Maybe this will get her straight. <laughs> Uh, and it was a remarkable life experience. One of my like highlights in life for sure. Um, cause of the self-confidence that came with this really hard thing I was doing of getting up every day and backpacking for miles and miles and carrying everything I needed. Right. And I remember sitting on the mountaintop and feeling this connection and not wanting to lose that connection and thinking, how do I bring this back home? How do I connect with this feeling back home? Because this is what this is what I've been looking for is this connection. And then it was gone, you know, and it didn't come back again until I got sober. But yeah, no, how I felt was just fully disconnected. I had a similar experience. Like when I was in high school, we went on this uh, a retreat. It was called Kairos, and it was a spiritual retreat. I'd never, I was a football player. I was uh, an athlete. I mean, I don't think I was like some kind of hammerhead. I thought I, I was a thoughtful person, uh, but I yeah. was not into spirituality at all. And we mm -hmm. went to this retreat mm -hmm. and I mean, I was sky high. I was talking about mm -hmm. what was going on with my life. Uh, other people were doing the same. And I came back from that retreat so energized and fulfilled and then, of course, I went to my buddy's house on a Friday night, and uh, and, and we started to drink beer right away. Exactly. Yep. A, a good friend, he he had taped Seinfeld for me from that week, and then we drank a couple beers. Uh, he's sober today too, so it's all it's <laughs> it's all good. But it, it's um, yeah. you know that that yeah. was uh, a, a, an experience that kind of like where I I think that's kind of what sobriety gives me today. That's but I didn't know then. You know, I felt connected. Right. Uh, and then I lost it, and I didn't get that type of connection back till, till I got sober. The one thing I want to go back and ask you about your father is, you know, that's kind of what this podcast is about. It's the opportunity for people to see what the other side looks like in recovery, how it is mm -hmm. a, an, an attractive life. There's a lot of us walking around uh, who aren't mm -hmm. remaining anonymous, which is fine. It's great. But at the same time, this gets – this opens it up for people like you had your dad right in front of you. And I know just right. from talking to you, you have a gratitude for that, but not everybody else has that. Uh, and so yeah. that is what we just want to kind of want to put this out there. Um, so people can see what it's like, but for you, what was it like? How important was your dad's sobriety as far as you managing to, to come out of the darkness at 24 as opposed to 44? Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it saved me. Well, save me my life. I don't know that I would have made it. Like, I think I, my suit, I think I probably would have taken my own life. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, it's a terrible thing to even think about, but like, I was, I was so desperate and I was so unwilling to really let it all fall apart, even though it was, and I didn't have any control of my alcoholism, the progressive disease, it was getting worse. Um, I mean, it just saved me so many years of pain. And yet, and yet when I walked into the room, you know, I, I also had used it as a barrier because I'd say like, oh, that's an old white man thing. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. I'm, you know, I'm 20 something. I live in New York City. Like that is not my crew. <laughs> and then I walked into the first room in in Brooklyn to my, um, actually Manhattan was my first meeting. And, and it was all people of all different ages and some were my age and, um, hearing their stories and thinking these people are what's wrong with these people that they're so happy. Why is anyone this happy about being an alcoholic? What's oh, yeah. wrong with you? I think something's wrong. And then I watched the basket go past, get passed around. And I was like, someone's got to steal from this basket. There's no way that there, no one's taking from this basket. For those of you who don't know at, at meetings, you know, at meetings they'll pass around the basket and uh, you know, pay for, for coffee, for, for, pay for donations. For yeah, yeah, yeah. Pay for literature. 
Yeah. So no one, I didn't see anyone take any money and, you know, but I also felt so inspired by people's courage and bravery and authenticity and willingness to share themselves fully with a room of strangers. And I was like fascinated by it and uh, envious, judgmental. I mean, I was like all the feelings in that first meeting, but I wanted I wanted that joy that they seemed to have, or at least that some of them seemed to have. And that laughter, I remember the laughter standing out to me and being like this realization of like, Oh, I don't think I've laughed not higher drunk in a really long time. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, my dad's example showed me like, this is what, this is what he showed me was, this is how you maintain your sobriety. And that's the piece. It's not just the not drinking because I didn't have a, I didn't have a drunk dad to compare to, right? Like, he was always sober in the sense that, like, how he stayed sober shifted when I was seven. But, like, he had always been a sober dad. So what he showed me, though, was, like, this takes work and in, in consistency and community and the principle of service and gratitude and not being perfect and not um, – not out recruiting members, you know, attracted that promotion, like just showing up as a solid person. And when it makes sense to share my sobriety, he shared sobriety with someone, but he wasn't like out sharing it all over the place. Um, but he was just consistent. He's a consistent, loving presence. And so I had that, I had that as my example. And I, and I knew I wanted to be that. And I knew I was becoming less of that the more I drank. Although it's been 20 years since the events of 9-11, many of us can still remember it like it was yesterday. America, and the world even, has never been the same. From Raphaelion Media, the King of the World podcast series explores the many repercussions of that day for the American Muslim community through the journey of host Shah Jahan Han, a high school senior at the time. Shah Jahan's story is something our listeners will respond to. Throughout much of his young adult life, he found himself abusing drugs and alcohol as he struggled with his mental health and his identity as a Muslim in this new America post 9-11. King of the World is his story told in seven parts. You'll learn about his struggle with sobriety and belonging alongside the major headlines of the last 20 years. Written and produced by American Muslims, King of the World is a sometimes comical, often heartbreaking examination of adversity that all Americans need to hear. Subscribe now to King of the World wherever you get your podcasts. What started to happen to you when you got sober? When you started, like, how did your, how did your meeting situation go? Uh, how did your sobriety go? Talk, talk to me about that. Mm, I was really scared to be alone, so I'd go to work. I worked in nonprofit healthcare then, uh, so I'd go to work, and then I'd go to a. Um, meet up with someone for coffee, usually my sponsor. And then I go to a meeting and then I go out to dinner after. <laughs> and then I go to coffee after that. And I basically would do, I would just, I put, I heard, um, be in the middle of the pack. Don't be on the outside of the pack or you get picked off by the wolves and the wolves are your bees. Like stay in the middle of the pack. So I really stayed in the middle of the pack and I'm super grateful for where I got sober because I'd show up at meetings with like 220 something year olds. It's just crazy. (laughs) I don't know how many other places, maybe Los Angeles has that vibe too, but like Brooklyn was a pretty awesome place to get sober at 24 because I learned how to be in the world and go out dancing in these environments where there's alcohol, but I was like surrounded by like 20 to 30 sober people. So I learned how to be safe in these like real life places. Was it hard to get sober that young? it would have been harder to keep drinking. No, I don't think, I mean, not, no, cause I was so miserable. No, it was a relief. I felt relief pretty quick. I didn't have an experience where, um, I felt like I was white knuckling it. Like I very much had a very pink cloud experience. Everything felt so much lighter and easier and invigorating. And uh, like I was addicted to the, the, the authenticity and the, just showing up however I was and being accepted. And there was a, an energy of that, of that group that I got sober with. How did you work with like, with, how did your life start to improve? 
oh, well, I stopped hating myself. I mean, I suppose that is a journey, but you know, I, I started feeling purpose and value in even my darkest stories that like when I started helping other women and seeing that my stories, my darkness could actually be the thing that helped them because it showed them that like, you'll be okay too. If you just don't drink and you stay connected, um, you know, it's going to, it will be okay. And maybe it doesn't feel okay right now, but it will be okay. was a huge dramatic shift. And then I started being able to show up fully at work and I was so supported at work, which was really, really critical to my sobriety that I felt safe enough at work to share that I was getting sober and had such loving support from my leadership team, which is something hopefully we'll get to that I am trying to do in my workplace today. Right. Uh, And so that made a huge difference because I felt like I could be my full self at work. Um, Well, I mean, I got to imagine that's quite quite a peace of mind, but that's quite a door to walk through. To have the courage to tell your employer, especially somebody like you, like for me, when I got sober, I mean, shit, everybody knew. Like they were like, thank, <laughs> thank, they were really, thank God. yeah, I mean, I really, I only had, I mean, if I showed up and I, you know, didn't look completely twisted, somebody was like, hey, what's, what's, what's up with you? Like, what? you know, like it was good. And so I got sober, people knew I could tell everybody it was kind of easier for me to. I don't know easier. But, How old were you when you uh, got sober? Well, I got sober when I was 33. And okay. I had had like some successes and th- some things going in my life, but I just blew them all up, uh, you know, at the mm. at the mercy, because um, I was at the mercy of, of alcohol and drugs. But so when I got sober, everybody was psyched. Somebody like you, who, you know, a lot of people <laughs> probably didn't know that you had a drinking problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, was that totally fulfilling? I would imagine it was to go walk in and tell your employer and to get a positive oh, I was reaction. Terrified. Are you kidding? I was shaking. I was like, I, like I was going to throw up. But yeah. I, for me, when I got sober, I felt like I had to tell everyone in my life and in my world that I was doing this thing to hold myself accountable to it. Like that was my approach. That doesn't work for everyone. That's not even necessarily a safe choice for everyone. But for me, that was how, how I held myself accountable was by telling all of my friends, my roommate, my family, my work. So that God forbid, if I were to pick up a drink, then everyone would say, Hey, that's not a good idea. Or, you know, do you need to talk or do you need to go to treatment? Or, you know, I wanted a layer of accountability on my behavior. So I outed myself like all over the place. Did you and I don't know if it was super shocking to them. I mean, I sort of hung over all the time, maybe. I would spend a lot of hours in the bathroom just, like, so sick, and I should have been fired. I was totally unproductive. How did, you think I, about productivity at work. Yeah, yeah, it was not a productive employee. How, how, how did you see yourself change professionally? I think that's something that um, I talked to oh friends gosh, about that, yeah. right? Yeah. Capacity, like my capacity. I don't know how people do I mean, I, I got sober young, so I'm like, I don't know how I would have continued being employable. I probably wouldn't have been had I kept drinking. I don't know how people do that. Like I, I was so horribly hungover and then so distracted thinking about where I was going to go drink. So yeah, when drinking got removed, I suddenly, all the space got freed up in my brain. (laughs) All the space I was thinking about, what did I do last night? Who did I say what to, what, what do I, you know, where did I screw up? Uh, how much money did I spend, et cetera. And, oh, my gosh, where I need to get another bagel, another cup of coffee because I feel terrible. Um, that space became free. And now I was well-rested and had energy and focus. And so I was super productive. And I actually then switched careers after about a year. I just was like, I can't stay in a cube. Like, my, my work was in a cube. And I was like, I can't do the cube life. Like, it's. It's not my personality. The work was super meaningful and important. And I'm incredibly grateful to the people in this world who do that work. Uh, but I, I couldn't do it. It wasn't my personality. I needed to get out and be engaged with people. So I actually went into commercial real estate in New York. I got my real estate license. And I went into commercial real estate. And then I switched to software sales when I moved back to Minnesota when I was about three years sober. And that's, so that's where you are now. A couple more things before we get to, to what you're doing. Now, because yeah. what, what you're doing now is is pretty crazy, um, in a good way. So, when, <laughs> yeah. 
So how, what about, when did you meet your husband? I always find it interesting to ask people oh, yeah. how they started, how they dated in sobriety. That was a huge thing for me. I oh, never man. thought I'd be able to talk to a girl without drinking oh, yeah. when I got sober. It took me a long time to meet my husband. I go through quite a few doozies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, that piece, oh please, that took a long time. <laughs> Figuring out my worth, my self-worth, and um, that I couldn't fix anyone else, that that's not my job, that's not actually a way to be loving service to the world is not to show up and try to fix other people. <laughs> that took me a long time. That took me a long time. Um, so I actually... I actually have only been married for five years. Congratulations. Uh, we met, yeah, we met seven years ago and um, on Instagram. <laughs> I, <laughs> on I Instagram, love it. Yeah. Where all the cool kids meet today. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we just started liking each other's photos and met for coffee, and that was that. Um, but no, I mean, I, I did it all sorts of the wrong for me. I mean, just a lot of people were, it was clearly wrong, but I was like, I can fix them. Uh-huh. I can get them sober. I can get them to treatment for whatever addiction they had fill in the blank. I can save this person. And then it was like, I just had to get to a place where I loved myself enough to go. That's not my job. Actually, that's not my, I'm, a, I'm responsible for me. <laughs> that's it. And I need to find someone where. I, you know, where it's just love and trust and safety and fun and connection and like, shouldn't be this hard work thing because it's really not. My marriage is the easiest part of my life, which I'm super grateful for. Well, and sobriety is a huge part of your life. So now you go, you move forward. You mentioned you get into software sales. You go back to Minneapolis and you become really like an agent of change. How did you, so you have, you, can I say where you work? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, you work at Salesforce um, and you have a a group there that you started, um, which is unlike any other as far as I'm concerned. It's called what, Sober Salesforce? Sober Force. Sober Force. And what happened? How did you get the balls to start <laughs> to walk into somebody's office uh, and say, hey, I want to start a recovery group at a, this huge corporate conglomerate. How does that even, how does that happen? <laughs> well, luckily there was a pandemic, so there's no walking into anyone's office, <laughs> uh, virtual office. Um, so I co-founded it with three other sober sales leaders. We got connected on LinkedIn. Someone had a co-founder, Chris Anthony, and he's done lots of podcasts about this, so I can share his name. He posted basically like a coming out of the sober closet type of post. He had never disclosed his sobriety and he was celebrating 15 years and he posted an article, 15, 15 things I've learned in 15 years sober, something like that, 15 years sobriety, something like that. And, excuse me, and another um, coworker whom I never met, so I never met any of these guys in the workplace. We all work in different divisions. Um, had connected and said, at mentioned me and said, hey, I think you'd appreciate this. And, and then we all got connected on a phone call and basically, we we're all long-term sobriety, like seven to 15 years, each of us, all in sales leadership at Salesforce and had a really nice chat. And we said, you know, we should, we should figure out how to extend this to the broader Salesforce community because at this point, it's September of 2020. So we're in the, you know, what at that time, probably the peak of the pandemic. Now yeah. I feel like who knows, yeah. but um you know, it, ramping up towards the winter and this pandemic, free vaccinations, and people are really struggling. And all of us were seeing it in our own sober communities. We're not all false step people, so some of us have um, faced sober different ways. Um, but we all were seeing this impact of the pandemic, right? And now we have the data that confirms what we saw. Um, the CDC last year or earlier this year released a report that said 42 million. Americans reported starting or increasing substance abuse as a way of dealing with the stress of the pandemic, which is pretty horrifying. Wow. Like, and then the numbers for women are even worse. I think it's like five X. It's something really, and that one I don't know by heart, but that that was pretty terrifying. That I heard the other day. So forty-two so percent of people reported that. That forty-two million. Forty-two, 42 million. million. I think Sorry. it equated to thirteen percent. Forty-two million Americans. Yeah. Wow. So massive impact this pandemic is having no surprise right i mean as an alcoholic i think we all get it like yeah, I, I know of four or five people personally 
who yeah, have who relapsed. been pushed. Been, well, guys that have relapsed and also people who are kind of flirting with, with the disease that just yeah. got pushed way over the edge by this. Yeah, because you're home alone or whatever in an office. So the, the, the way I managed my alcoholism before I got sober was, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a little tangent no, here, no. but the way I got, the way I managed my, or managed my alcoholism to the best of my ability before I got sober was around the work hours. So when I was at work, I wasn't drinking because I was in an office and I couldn't. But you remove that, so that's a whole bunch of people who now are home all day, drinking all day. It adds stress and anxiety and depression, job losses, food insecurity, uh, loss of loved ones. I mean, just like a recipe for addiction to thrive in and a lot of isolation, which is really where my disease loves is isolation. So, so anyway, so we said, yeah, this is, we know that it's, it's having a massive impact and people need help and they need community and they need to feel seen at work and safe at work. And so how can we do that? And luckily we had the framework from our office of equality um, on how to do it. And at the time, so we stood up on Chatter, which is part of our Salesforce platform. We now have moved it to Slack. We acquired Slack. Slack, sure. Um, but it's a public forum um, for anyone at the company to either officially join as a member or just follow along, which is intentional. Yeah. So we have our page public. Um, and we, we set it up to be a community for sober, sober curious, sober allies to destigmatize addiction by sharing our stories authentically with each other and to support and facilitate inclusive environments. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, when there's a wine tasting, let's ask for permission if that person would like a bottle of wine or a Bite Squad gift card sent to their house. Right. Or yeah. let's ensure that we have just as many, if not more, non-drinking virtual events that we're hosting for our customers and our employees as we do the wine tastings. Right. I think wine tastings became like an easy default for everyone in the corporate virtual world. And so we were trying to inspire um, that moment of pause to say, am I creating an inclusive event for everyone or not? And it's not to say there's not a place for wine tasting. We're very careful to say, like, we're not the anti-drinking crew. Yeah. But but we do want us to um, bring mindfulness. And mindfulness, I think, for me, comes when there's representation in the workplace. Visibility matters. Right? And so let's share our stories together so that everyone feels like they can be their full selves at work and not have to hide these parts of themselves. Right? And also, my hope, and I think a lot of hope of uh, the members is that we help someone achieve or find sobriety sooner and before they lose more, you know? And so my hope is that we raise some people's bottom and that they can seek this help that is here for anyone who wants it um, sooner than later. So there's a lot of partnership with our benefits team and our HR team to ensure that these awesome benefits that Salesforce offers our employees are surfaced in a way that people can get access to them when they need them, you know, and um, that we make it easy for are, people to take advantage of these benefits. Are, are, are you removing the stigma or are people still sheepish about coming out of the darkness? Because if I, because if, <laughs> you know, I was a chronic relapser, right? So like if I work with you and I go yeah. and I say, hey, I got to stop drinking, and then I, I'm at a work function with you two years from now, and I'm drinking or plastered. How does that work? Is there? And I'm just curious. It's <laughs> uh, a great question. There are definitely people in our group who who have struggled with relapse, and that's true for a lot of people with addiction. Um, we are we are a group for everyone, so we are very encouraging. I'll, I'll answer your question too, but to get to the second part, yeah, like, no. we want we want allies in our group. For, for quite a few reasons. And one of the reasons is that we don't want people to assume if you're part of this group, oh, you must be an addict in recovery. Because the stigma is still real, right? And yeah. so, um, and that then keeps people from participating. So it's like, no, we want everyone in here, including drinkers, including those who are maybe sober curious, including the people who are sober for religious reasons or for, um, support reasons to support a friend or a loved one who's in sobriety and they're 
choosing to not drink to support them, right? There's lots of reasons people choose to not drink, including just, oh, I feel better when I don't. And that's a valid reason too, right? And so um, we want this group to be all-inclusive, and we are, we're pretty vocal about that. For the first part around the segment, no, we're not going to break the stigma overnight. Yeah. I wish. Yeah. No. No. This is, we have a long journey ahead of us. <laughs> I think as a world, we have a massive drinking problem. We are really good at numbing out as humans, I'd say. And uh, maybe it's just part of the human condition. Like, we're really good at numbing ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it's been you since know? the beginning of time. We've been finding ways to, to, to get out of self yeah. the wrong ways. Right. Right. So the stigma doesn't disappear overnight. But it is super powerful for people to see others claiming the title of, yeah, I'm an alcoholic in recovery. And that then makes it okay for someone else to say it. Totally. And so what's been incredibly powerful is to watch people who are counting days sober, at 30 days sober, at 60 days sober, and feeling safe enough to post it on Slack. And then the outpouring of support that comes from the Sober Force community is just like, makes me tear up. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, every, yeah. yeah. What you're doing Well, everything one of them stay sober? I don't know. Yeah. Probably, physically, probably not, but. Do they have a place to come back to that's here always? Yes. Well, and there's a big right? picture. There's a big picture component to this. Uh, there are so many. Again, I was lucky that I had, you know, the first time I went to an AA meeting, I always say it took me 10 years to get a year. You know, I went to my first meeting mm. ever um, really when I had a problem. I, a buddy of mine took me. I had a problem, too. A buddy of mine took me when I was, like, uh, 19 because he had gotten sober and he knew that I was an alcoholic. But I wasn't really ready to go to You're a meeting ready. till 2002 and then it took me till 2011 um late mm. 2011 or no sorry 2012 to have a year um and mm. so but but there was so much a uh, put it i guess what i'm trying to say is there you just never know what's going to get you there and there are little nuggets that were sprinkled yeah. on me along the way um and i didn't i wasn't lucky enough to have a place that I could, you know, I, I had several jobs in between that first meeting and that time when I had a year, but I never was it promoted to be sober. Never was it, you know, people, I mean, yeah. we're talking about, this is back when you got sober. Um, you know, I was, I was hitting it pretty hard in like 2005, like 2006, there, nobody was like, if you, you for as far as I was concerned, uh, the people at work would have looked at you cross-eyed. Or, or you would have been, <laughs> you, you would have been kind of like a leper. I'm, really, I mean, well, at least yeah. not to everybody, individual people. Maybe somebody would have pulled you aside, but it's at least that's how I saw it. Now, people like you are creating a culture and an environment where, look, man, you got a problem. Let's 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 handle. It. Let's take care of it. Now, at that point in time, like you could go into an AA meeting, of course, at any time, and be totally welcomed and loved. I'm just mm. talking about in the workplace specifically. And there, yeah. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, like I worked at a healthcare nonprofit. So we were there facilitating conferences for people who dedicated their lives to the HIV AIDS uh, population of uninsured or underinsured, you know, New York City uh, community members. Like whatever. I mean, it was like we were yeah. talking about things that would make a lot of people squirm at that time, I guess, right? Sex education. And so it was a group that was pretty welcoming to I'd say anything around health and wellness. Um, so I'm lucky in that regard that that's where I got sober. And then I brought my sobriety into a commercial real estate firm, which was, uh, you know, <laughs> there was a, plenty of drinking happening there. Um, <laughs> and in the sales US, world, in know, the sales world, there's, there's, yeah. there's a lot of drinking. Well, exactly. And so that's a big piece of it is like, how do we, I mean, let's be real. There's a lot of drinking everywhere. So I think that like, I mean, yes, in sales, do we go out to dinners and do that? Yes. But the reality is there's just a lot of drinking everywhere. There's just as many people in the nonprofit world who drink. Um, but your question of how did I get the courage to go into, I didn't, so I have a fantastic mentor. Well, I've lost a fantastic mentors, but one of my fantastic men mentors is Justin McGuire, who's our executive sponsor of Silverforce, and he's our chief design officer at Salesforce. And he actually was the one who really encouraged us to formalize this group. So when we were having this conversation between the four of us, we were talking about this idea. He was, you know, in the background, one to one with me saying, you guys should really do this and then let me help you. And I will, I will happily be your executive sponsor if you, if you want me to be right. So that helped because it was the permission to go do this. But we also already had the framework established as the office of equality of how to create a group. And so I think if you are at a company where you have an employee resource group framework, 
where it can be employee-led and employee-created groups, that helps lessen the barrier to create these types of groups, right? Because then you have the framework and the permission to go create something and getting an executive sponsor who's got access to power definitely helps. And then my direct leadership team, a few year friend, I was also incredible. Connor Marsden. So Give I'm, him I'm a shout out. <laughs> I, I was sitting. So this is a beautiful thing, right? Because this is sobriety for you. I got sober and a lot of people knew at the, you know, cause I had flamed out. A lot of people knew that I got sober because, you know, I, I'd started to do well or okay in, in life. And I, and I started, you know, showing up for stuff and, uh, close, close friends knew that I was sober, but then of course, you know, everybody lives their life and goes in different directions. And, you know, I'm just Pete to all, to all my friends from college, Connor Marsden and I went to the university of Richmond. I knew Connor through the football team and Connor was a very close friend. I lived with Connor for a while. Uh, I, I think I crashed Connor's car twice. Um, God, <laughs> yeah. wow. He is forgiving. Yeah. Oh, big time. Uh, you know, and I, and I, let's just say I wasn't sober. Um, and so Connor is just, uh, he is salt of the earth and he called me up because of this podcast I'm doing. It was put back out there. Uh, and he was like, I've, I've got, I didn't know, you know, he knew I was sober, but he said, you know, what you're doing is, is terrific. And I've got somebody you've got to talk to. And so here we are today. And that is like the circle of life. And, and I think what you're doing is unbelievable. And, And now, as Connor told me, you're starting to get pinged. By other, because uh, Salesforce is a huge conglomerate. You're starting to get pinged by other uh, major yeah. companies a- about this. Uh, how is that developing? So I, I don't know if I can share the names only because I don't know if they've created it, but I will say that other Fortune 500 and even Fortune 100 companies have started just organically finding the story through podcasts or Business Insider did an article in Future Dust, which is great. Newsweek did an article in Future Dust. Like the stories are getting organically just getting out there. Um, thanks to LinkedIn, I think, and people posting and networks and sharing, like what happened with you and Connor. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, people are starting to reach out who are sober themselves and hearing these stories and going, I want to create this in my company too. Because the reality is people are suffering everywhere. This isn't like, you know, it's not like alcoholics and addicts exist in one place, one realm. We're everywhere. I think they say 12.7% of the population struggles with addiction. It's a massive number. Yeah. So... If we can make it okay to talk about it, maybe we reach someone who says, I need help sooner, right? We keep someone, help to keep someone sober because they don't feel like they need to drink as part of their job. No job says that, by the way. I mean, at least definitely not at Salesforce. You could always opt out, but do you give yourself permission to opt out or do you use those excuse to drink again? So it's like, let's just eliminate all these, these barriers, these self-imposed barriers. And make it okay to just have this conversation in the workplace to say, like, it's, a, it's okay to be an alcoholic and be here. And what you what we're doing in turn is just making it okay for people to be human. And so yeah. people will come to me with other struggles, right? But that I feel so grateful that people trust me enough as this remote colleague they've never met in real life to tell me what's really going on in their lives. Whether it's a parent dying of cancer, because I went through that journey and I shared that journey or it's a, a child struggling with depression or eating disorder, right? That like we can, we can bring our human selves to work and it doesn't mean we are not productive and we don't do our jobs and all of that is still true. But there's also space to be human, which for me just further connects me to my place of employment because that isn't always the case everywhere. But if, it, if companies could figure that out, I think you'd, solve a lot of retention problems <laughs> yeah I, I i can only imagine the com- camaraderie because i you know this kind of goes back to connor uh, and i was fortunate enough to work in team sports but i, I always found camaraderie in sports that was like unlike anything else and yeah you, you, yeah certainly was not a professional but you talk to guys who retire pro players and they the first thing they say they miss is the locker room the camaraderie the guys um or the, or yeah. the girls on the women's side but you know now I have a whole nother, I have a group now uh, I talked about. I have that camaraderie and I can only imagine mm. the camaraderie at your workplace, how it's been elevated by what, what you're doing, the, 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 the bonds that are being formed that has to be pretty amazing. Have you seen that all at all? Have you seen the workspace improve? I would say I definitely hear it in people's stories who feel 
um, I say freed that they can share this part of themselves at work and be of service to a fellow colleague who may be earlier on the journey. I know I have that experience when someone reaches out to me and says, I just got sober. I'm, you know, I had this event. How do I opt out? And just to talk it through and share my own experience of what being a successful sober sales leader who's never picked up a drink in her sales career. And yet I've grown a sales career. Right. And so even just to be able to say like, yeah, here, I'm an example of that. Let me tell you how I did it and how I had that conversation. Um, brings so much meaning to work. So at a, at a global scale, can I say the impact? Not yet. I mean, we have 330 members of our group. A lot more. That's an impact right there. 330? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good for having just started. (laughs) That's pretty damn good. That's pretty good. And we have monthly calls and we've had 60 people join our monthly calls and we have a way for people to call anonymously because we're mindful that there is that stigma and people and people on, and also not being so there is an anonymous people, element to it. There's an anonymous element of just people being able to join anonymously. Awesome. We want people to get the content and not feel like they have to be outed if they're not ready, right? Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, and so your question about like people maintain their anonymity. There's also a lot of people who reach out to me who have said, "Hey, I've been sober 15 years. I love what you're doing. I just don't feel comfortable like bringing that part of myself to work." but like cheering you on from the sidelines. Yeah, I, I, I had that happen to me recently. Uh, somebody pulled me aside and they said, you know, I like what you're doing. I was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, I could care less. Right? Look, yeah, they, it's up to you whether you, wh- whatever you? you want to do with it. Totally, yeah. Uh, <laughs> totally, mm-hmm. totally. Because it's not for me to say what someone else's journey is on it. For me, I feel like I can be a maximum service doing this work in this way. How do you that's feel like about like, like meeting like, do you feel like this will go forward and, and you would this would be something where you guys, when, when uh, you know, the conditions and circumstances allow, you would be doing this in person? I would love to. I mean, we're encouraging people to get together for coffee if they live in the same city. So we're trying to facilitate that with a, a phone list and locations. And people have, I've noticed people starting to ping like, hey, is anyone going to be in around the San Francisco office? Like, let's grab coffee. So that's wow. awesome to see. I hope, I hope that pops up in little groups. And, you know, and we share, we highlight in our stories, like, there isn't just one path to sobriety or one reason for sobriety. And so we try to feature all different stories. Um, people are in our group. Most people in our group, I'd say, it's around recovery from alcoholism and drug addiction. But there are definitely people in our group who are in recovery from sex addiction and gambling addiction and food addiction. And, like, all of those pathways, all of those experiences are welcome. Oh, it's all out there. Um, and it's I, a, yeah. it's <laughs> all out there. Yeah, yeah. It's mostly dominated by people in recovery from drugs and alcohol. But, yeah, I hope that when we get back in person, you know, Dreamforce this year is virtual, but our hope as a team is that we can have a sober event at Dreamforce. That's a goal that we have set for ourselves as a team. And so hopefully when that day comes back where we're all together in San Francisco, we can have a, a zone for our sober customers. And again, sober allies, not just you sober, but like come get coffee, come chat where it's in a, a non-drinking space because for some people it's not safe at all to walk in a bar that wasn't my experience but that's the experience of a lot of people and so how do we again honor that create space where that you know you can be a part of without partaking in drinking well and yeah and 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 really like you don't have to kill yourself because it's so and, and this is not like hyperbole you talked to you and i talked on the phone before this and the person who has to go out on a sales call where there's alcohol involved, but they think they have a problem and they don't know how to handle that. And they got nobody to talk right. to. So they're like, well, I just got to go on this call. And then they get drunk. And then maybe that was the window where they were going to stop drinking. And now they're just drinking forever. And then the worst right. happens. It's not, it doesn't have to be like that. There's avenues for people no. to go down and, and you've created yeah. one of them. Anything else we need to know about, about, about uh, sober force? I just say if anyone is interested in creating this in their company, please do find me on LinkedIn and reach out. And we don't have anything formal to distribute yet. I hope one day we'll get there. We're still pretty new. But, you know, I just, I, my hope is, and our hope is that we see other companies follow suit and have this brave conversation in the workplace. And um, super excited by the interest that's been expressed because, yeah, there are a lot of people who need community in the workplace. And, um, this is a great avenue to facilitate that. So, so I can put, I can put your, people. I can put your LinkedIn, um, like yes. when, when I post yes. this, okay, I'll, I'll attach that. Um, Please do. anything else? Well, I would, I'd like to tell, ask people this question. 
what would you tell the person that's hanging on just just trying to get a day? What what do you what do you tell those people? Mm, there's such an easier, softer way, and you deserve life. You deserve life. Right. And there's a lot of us who are here to share our stories. So come find us, <laughs> so we can connect. <laughs> Uh, Marn, I, I, I have a feeling this won't be the last time we talk, so um, I'll be in touch. Pete, thank you so much for having these conversations. It matters, so thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and uh, like I said, we'll talk soon, okay? Sounds good. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, she was awesome. Marn, you there? I'm still here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank God you didn't think, oh, my God, what a disaster that was. Shit. <laughs> no, you were great. You were great. Uh... Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.